Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Inshallah everyone's doing okay. Um, I put a mic this time so I hope this sounds a little bit better than it has been in the garage. Um, we're starting today towards sacred activism by Imam Dawood Walid. And... Um, you know, there's probably a lot of things we could say to introduce the topic and why do we want to study it and so on and so forth. But I get the feeling that all of that will be covered in the course of the text. So no need to overdo it with my own comments. Those will, be, those will come in due time, inshallah. Uh, it's not a large book. As you see, it's probably... It's about 75 pages and actually I think it's well it's not exactly so it's about 65 pages so we're just gonna read it as those of you who have come before know uh, I'm kind of a I kind of prefer the old-school method of reading the text just feel like it it it's, it leads to a, a deeper understanding of the text and also um, make sure that we understand everything gives people opportunity to ask questions about each part so on and so forth and in the words of one of the contemporary ulama it is a tried and true method that has produced many scholars so whereas other methods maybe don't have the same <coughs> well, you know they're not as tried and true. It's a tried and true method. Over a thousand years, it's produced big scholars. So we'll read the English. Also, the good thing about just reading it is in the the foreword is by Imam Zaid Shakir, Hafidhullah, Wunafanullah bi'ilmihi, and then it has a preface by Chaplain Lina Safi. So both of those are promising, and then after that, it gets into the actual text. Inshallah. So. Without further ado, we'll begin with the words of Imam Zaid Shakir in the foreword, which will, I think, give us everything we need to get started in this party, inshallah. Bismillah. This work by Imam Dawood Walid towards sacred activism is a very valuable addition to the ever-growing library of English Islamic literature. That statement should not be underappreciated. For those of you who are younger, you don't know about the days when there was very little in English and most of the publications that we had weren't very good. They didn't have good typesetting, the paper wasn't good quality, the translations usually weren't very good. You kind of had to like work your way through the translation and try to figure out what's being said. Um, times have changed, like you would not find stuff like this, it was rare. Um, now this is like common, so many things have been translated, so many things have been published. So. That's a great opportunity. The title itself, however, seems to hint at an oxymoron. After all, activism, as usually understood, implies a passionate, engulfing engagement with the world, while the sacred implies that which is of or related to God. Which is of or related to God, who is, in many critical aspects, distinct from the world. This seeming contradiction only exists when we view the world through the dichotomized lens provided us by the modern West. As more and more Muslims adopt that lens as part of their effort to both understand and engage the modern world, 
The gap between the religious scholar, viewed by many as the principal defender and preserver of the sacred in the world, and the activist grows wider, grows wider. So he's saying that this idea of sacred activism is an oxymoron. Does that is that what this is? Isn't the sacred not related to the world and activism is related to the world? But he's saying that the only reason we would understand it that way is because we ourselves are looking at it from the paradigm of the modern West. Modern West, not necessarily the West, but the modern West. And that wouldn't be necessarily the way that we look at it from an Islamic, quote-unquote, perspective. Just as a note, um, Imam Zaid and Imam Dawood Walid are both uh, extraordinarily qualified to be able to speak about activism, which is important to note, you know, that maybe people don't realize that, but Imam Zaid Shakir has been around, as they say, you know, like he, it's not like he just fell off the turnip truck and decided to step out of the ivory tower and write a book on activism. Uh, Imam Zaid has done this for decades and has worked with in local communities on the ground to change neighborhoods, to build people up from the ground up, to work with all types of different people of backgrounds and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, if you don't know, research is a good thing. You can read his, uh, I think it's called Scattered Pictures. You can read that one. It has different pieces of his life and different writings that he's done. Or you could also read his mother's memoirs just to get a feeling for like where did he grow up? What are the things he's been through? Does he really understand? Quote unquote, sometimes say, you know, someone will say something and you say, well, he doesn't understand. Well, you go and read what his life was and what his mother's life was. Uh, so that's number one. Number two for Imam Dawood Walid. Um, the memoirs. Let me grab it for you. Happens to be here. Scattered pictures we don't have here. But most of our books we don't have here. But we have here. called Dear Self. Sorry, it's backwards. I know if I probably, let me, oops. There's probably some setting that I can change that will, there you go. Uh, make it easier to see. Dear Self, a year in the life of a welfare mother. Richeline Mitchell. Forward Imam Zaid Shakir. You can find it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I can't say that I've read it in its entirety, but um, I've read some of it, and it's pretty amazing. So, you know, it's like really 7.30 p.m., this and this and this, on this day, you know. Then April 1st, 1973, Dear Self. i give you an example. <laughs> uh, maybe not that one. Let me, let me read... Let's see. It's just very, um, 
you know, very just home again. I just ate lunch and I'm waiting for the check, quote unquote, so I can go downtown and get the food stamps, pay the rent, etc. Please, Lord, do I have to say it again or should I just try to be patient a little longer? And so and so and so and so and so on. Like, you know, it's really, it's really good. Dear self, a year in the life of a welfare mother. And I think it's really beautiful how um, he, he did this. You know, Imam Zaid is the one who put this out. It's New Islamic Dimensions Publishers, you know, his, uh, his blog. Anyways, he's qualified to do it is the point. Imam Dawood Walid, also very qualified to speak about this topic as someone who's, again, uh, I mean, he's the director of care in uh, Michigan. I believe that's his title. And he has just been around, like involved in all kinds of things for a long time, um, on the ground, in the streets, during protests, coalition building, all of that kind of stuff. Okay, enough. It's in this Western conceptual universe that the tension between the religious scholar and the worldly activist exists. The tension should not exist. It's actually like for, for a Muslim, it's not really acceptable for the tension to exist. If the tension exists, there's a problem either on the scholar's side or on the activist side. So someone, it's, it's a problem on someone's side. Either the scholar isn't familiar enough with the context or the activist doesn't really understand what they're doing. Uh, at very many different levels, right? Um, I can say for sure, like when we were in MSA uh, in the fifties, the uh, like our relationship with the imams was always really close. We were always talking to the imams, always inviting them over, always trying to get their feedback. So on, we we looked at our work as part of their work, and vice versa, you know. Um, the t this tension is itself an extension of that existing between the spiritual and the corporal, the sacred and the secular, the religious and the profane, which has defined European society since the onset of modernity. Moving beyond that dichotomy requires moving into another conceptual realm. That alternative realm is defined by revelation, not reason. Saying this is not to deny the role that reason plays in aiding our understanding, in aiding our understanding of not just religion but our very world. By the way, Imam Zaid Shakir also has his master's degree in political science um, in terms of political analysis and stuff like that. Revelation, however, provides the parameters within which reason operates. To deny the existence and importance of those parameters is to nullify the logic of religion itself and to elevate humans to a place reserved for God. When this happens, divine oneness and unity, which is informed by revelation, tawheed, is replaced by human multiplicity and confusion, Tekthir, which is informed by reason. Within such a situation, activism, no matter how well intended, cannot be sacred. Acknowledging the centrality of God in human affairs is essential for the realization of a sacred activism. This acknowledgement allows us to understand that nothing occurs independent of the knowledge, will, and power of God. This is important for the activist to understand because he or she, as well as his or her actions, uh, as well as his or her actions, are a manifestation of the divine will in the world. This realization is one of the first steps towards a sacred activism, for it bequests unto its possessor a tawhidi consciousness, as well as a sense of purpose, which motivates one to seek to understand the divine wisdom governing all that we do. The comprehensiveness of that consciousness, when it is fully developed, is captured in the word of Imam al when he states, With the name of Allah, with Allah, from Allah to Allah, 
upon Allah and in Allah there is no strength or power except with Allah this is part of the weird of Imam Nawawi um, this the the daily devotional of Imam Nawawi which has a uh, translation and commentary by Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah Hafizullah uh, I think it's called the devotion of Imam Nawawi uh, I don't know how easy it is to get though I think it might have a limited print or something but if you can get a copy the devotion of Imam Nawawi it's fantastic and perhaps we can convince Sheikha Muslima Permal to teach it again she taught it at a at a Rihla one year at Zaytuna um, when Zakia was a baby so that must have been like two, two and a half two years ago two years ago maybe so maybe she can teach it again inshallah this consciousness is essential for cultivating a sense of responsibility before God that sense of responsibility in turn translates into a willingness to conform to the divine law this is the next step in moving towards a sacred activism the important legal point here which Imam Dawood discusses in this work is that every action the believer undertakes must be informed by knowledge of the divine law this is a general principle every action that the believer takes has to be informed by the divine law if we know the ruling great if we don't know the ruling we have to figure out what the ruling is we can't just uh, haphazardly do things we have to, every single thing that we do we do with intention that it attains the, that it's done for the sake of Allah and with understanding of the way of the Prophet and to try to make sure that that thing that we're doing uh, aligns with the way of the Prophet Thus, before an activist engages in a particular action, he must endeavor to learn the legal ruling relating to it in terms of its permissibility or impermissibility along with its lawful and unlawful aspects. Um, if anyone else wants to read and you have the book, just go ahead and let me know in the chat box if you want to do that or not. For example, it would not be permissible for a Muslim to become involved in a campaign to defend the legality of pornography were a serious effort to ban it to appear because viewing pornography is impermissible. For a believer, First Amendment arguments here would be irrelevant owing to the impermissibility of the act in question. Um... If you do read, your video won't show up on the live stream because it's stuck on me. So they'll just watch me sitting and listening to you reading, just in case you're worried about that. Uh, from a different perspective, if a Muslim were to participate in a lawful march for a permissible cause, he or she could not join members uh, of the Black Bloc or another violence-prone group in smashing store windows along the march route because destruction of someone else's property is forbidden in Islam. Okay. Hence, every activist must be a scholar in the realm of his or her activism, in the realm of her activism, as she must be conversant with the legal rulings associated with a particular action she may become involved with. This idea of the activist as scholar is something that immediately challenges the scholar-activist dichotomy. In reality, this dichotomy is fallacious owing to the existence of a third opinion the activist who is herself a scholar. Such a person combines the worldliness of activism with the spirituality of the scholar. And this is definitely possible, right? Like whatever field that we're in, we can become knowledgeable of the issues that relate to that field. 
So we have a type of knowledge, a scholarship, so to speak, of the issues that are related to that field. Um, a very common, like, uh, modern example of this would be Islamic economics. So you have people that are scholars in Islamic economics, but they're not. You don't ask them other questions, right? Like you're not going to go ask them about fasting or Hajj or something like that. But you can ask them in Islamic economics, and they have good grounding in that topic. Sorry, it's like. I've, for those who are new The old majlis when we had the place The tradition at the majlis was that we all drink tea And we bring the tea and we serve it to everyone And we drink tea together And it's like part of the experience, right? So in the last couple of sessions I've, I've been trying to bring my own tea You know, B-Y-O-T to, to these gatherings So forgive me while I make myself comfortable In the majlis uh, this union of the worldly and spiritual is beautifully illustrated in the Quran. We read, It is not righteousness to orient your faces east or west in prayer. Rather, righteousness is to believe in God, doomsday, the angels, the scriptures, and the prophets. It is to spend wealth despite the love for it, for the relative, the orphan, the poor, wayfarers, beggars, and for the liberation of slaves. It is to establish regular prayer, pay the poor due, and to faithfully fulfill covenants having convened them. This is Quran 2.177. This verse begins by mentioning the spiritual. Uh, this is part of the reason why, even though we use it all the time, I'm not really comfortable with the term. You know, when we say, like, we need spiritual advisors. No, <laughs> no jab at MSA West intended. Uh, we need spiritual advisors. We need, um, from a spiritual side of things, from a, like, this compartmentalization is um, it makes it seem like we can do things and then just sprinkle the salt afterwards. And it doesn't really work that way. Like, it has to be integrated somehow. All of these things have to be integrated somehow. <laughs> that was really un unintentional. Uh, sometimes we use terms because that's what's understood by people. But we should, you know, also... He put spiritual... The reason I'm saying this is because he put spiritual here in quotations. This verse begins by mentioning the spiritual. Here, represented by prayer and the basic tenets of faith, it immediately moves on to mention some of the most important realms of social action. As the family is the foundation of society, social action begins close to home with spending for the well-being of relatives and then orphans. From there, the verse mentions care for the poor, wayfarers, beggars, and for the liberation of slaves. It then calls our attention back to the spiritual by reminding us of the incumbency of establishing regular prayer. We are then moved back to the realm of social action when we are reminded of the right society has over our wealth through the institution of zakat, as well as the importance of fulfilling all of our covenants and contracts. And all of this is being referred to as bir. This is all righteousness. Right? So, uh, like washing dishes can be an act of spirituality. Uh, to use one that's, again, close to the MSA West students. Uh, vacuuming can be an act of spirituality. Watching your kids, changing a diaper can be spirituality. Prayer can be spirituality, of course. Right? There are things that are mahd al-ibadah. And there are things that are ibadah. You know, there's things that are full-on acts of worship. They're ta'abudi even in a sense. And then there's things that are acts of worship because of our intention. Of course, our intention turns the ada into ibadah. 
So the intention either distinguishes between the various types of ibadah or it turns the adah into ibadah, which means that the intention will tell you, did I pray four rakah of sunnah right now or did I pray four rakah of fard? Or it will tell you, when I ate this food right now, was it an act of worship or not? Actually, like everything the Prophet ﷺ did was spiritual in a sense, right? But like because it all was connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So everything we do really is is spiritual. Um, and there's there's not like there is mundane and there's you know just day-to-day stuff, but day-to-day stuff can be turned into spiritual, and that's what we want. We want to have an active relationship with God in that way. Uh, which one do you want me to elaborate on? Um, you said something about like spiritual counseling, spiritual advising, something like that. Um, what did you mean? Did you mean like we shouldn't use the term spiritual or? No, I just mean that. <sighs> there's like a there's a compartmentalization in it. Meaning, there's almost like, it, it's almost like a subtle, subtle secularization. Like we put Islam over here, and we'll go and knock on that door whenever we feel like it. We're dealing, when we're feeling, we're dealing with the spiritual thing. But the other stuff is not spiritual, so we don't need to consider that. But really, like, it's not a horizontal issue, actually. It's more of a vertical issue. So... Islam is on the top and everything else kind of falls under it in different places and so in that sense um, Everything is spiritual right and at the same time That also kind of reminds us that the quote-unquote religious scholar should be multifaceted That if they are to understand the world then they should be well-versed in a number of different areas and their life should also be, um, you know, like multi-part. Like they should live a normal real life. Um, They say, for example, I think it was Imam Muslim, uh, the compiler of the Hadith collection, that he would act upon the Hadith that he puts in his collection. And he took it so seriously that like he was a master archer for example because he's gonna write hadith he's gonna compile hadith about how the prophet them was an archer so now that just became spiritual and um, so many other issues become spiritual because all of those are gonna have hadith about them um. Yeah, yeah. it's not that there's a problem with the term It's just that Like what happens is Sometimes I feel like what happens is We use spiritual and then we refer it only to like If we were to break down Islam into Iman, Ihsan, Islam Islam, Iman, Ihsan The five pillars, the six articles of faith The spiritual side of things, quote unquote Then it just goes to that third one And we ignore the other two so the theology doesn't actually become part of the spiritual. The, the physical rules of like you can do this, you can't do that, doesn't become part of the spiritual. But like, techni- you know, um, 
not like he said not breaking store windows when going in going on a protest is a matter of spirituality just the, just the same way that uh, controlling one's anger is a matter of spirituality or trying to be mindful of God is a matter of spirituality and um, you know not throwing your trash in front of your neighbor's house is a picking up you're, you don't have a dog because that's a matter of spirituality. So you have like a, with some details, but like you're walking your cat and your cat poops on the neighbor's yard. You pick up the poop. It's a matter of spirituality, right? So there's like issues like this. You can tell that these things are happening. <laughs> it's picked up. Allah help us. Uh, I can read if you like. Just let me know what page we're on. Okay. We're on the bottom of 13. Let us return. Alright, salam alaikum. Alaikum salam. Is it, um, let us return here? Yes, let us return here. Let us return here to the liberation of slaves mentioned in the above verse, focusing on the idea of liberation. From black liberation to now white liberation. From women's liberation to gay liberation. From Palestinian liberation to Catalonian liberation. To the actual liberation of slaves whose numbers are increasing globally. Liberation is a theme that informs the social justice agenda of many contemporary activists. Okay, keep going, very good. We should note that liberation movements are unique in that they tend to become inseparable from the quest for political power. This is so because the effects of liberation can only have an enduring impact if they are institutionalized by public policy. This politicizing of social movements renders many of them frayed and vicious, oftentimes zero-sum struggles solely focused on worldly goals. In the ensuing scrum, there is little room for the sacred. A Muslim who is caught up in these struggles may find that he or she is amenable to spiritual burnout, which itself is a function of losing touch with God. Mm, mm. Mm, interesting. Um, so just to uh, be clear when we're reading this and I'm sharing comments on this and stuff I'm sharing reflections on this not as an expert of Islam nor as an expert of s social sciences or social change or political movements or anything like that this is just like uh, someone who cares about these things and we're reading it together so don't like if it's not a matter of revelation that I'm speaking about or strictly a matter of Islamic studies don't take what I'm saying as being like a hundred percent okay um, so oftentimes what I'm saying is like a reflection one of the reflections that I've been thinking about is that sometimes the culture around the way that social change happens now is so combative that it makes it difficult to build the kind of uh, diplomacy and coalition that's needed usually to actually change things. So when he's saying this enduring impact if they are institutionalized by public policy, like to get something institutionalized by public policy requires usually a lot of relationship building, a lot of bridge building, a lot of building understanding, conversations, debates, back and forth. But when you can't do any of that because of the nature and culture of the interaction, then 
you can make a point about something, but where is it actually going to go? You know? And these are the things that, subhanAllah, you learn kind of subtly in family. You see, like, how there's an emphasis on the individual, there's an emphasis on the family, there's an emphasis on the society. When you have a big family, you realize, like, yeah, I could just go to, I could just go to war with my family members on every single thing that I feel really passionate about. But we're not really going to have much of a family afterwards. So, like, how am I going to keep this thing together while still saying the things that I feel, you know, passionate about and, and so on and so on? But, like, how do, how do we work together towards something that's better? Even if it's not ideal, maybe it's better than it was, and then it can go better from there and better from there. And this is not usually a perspective that people like to hear anymore. But uh, especially in light of current events, I've been thinking about this a little bit. Um, Uncle Charlie, is really good to see you. I was thinking about you all week. Inshallah, you're doing well. A couple of weeks now. Um. <clears throat> all right. It is here that the need for sacred activism, Coaster, inshallah, will come back to you since you're the only uh, volunteer. We'll come back to you, inshallah, in a couple paragraphs. It is here that the need for sacred activism becomes most acute. That's not um, a, uh, a critique on anyone, by the way. Because you might not have the book Or you might just not want to read Which is okay, you don't have to <coughs> It is here that the need for sacred activism Becomes most acute To elaborate, when activism is solely focused On worldly concerns And when the methodologies and philosophies Informing that activism do not account For the existence of God Who is, after all, the ultimate dispenser of justice That activism can become The source of despair and frustration for example, if I am a Marxist or atheist and do not believe in God or the hereafter, I have to get justice in this world for there is no other realm available for its attainment. Hence the quest for justice becomes a bitter and intense struggle because if I do not get it here, I do not get it at all. Furthermore, when God is not in the equation, the activist can lose sight of the fact that there is a limit to the efficacy of his or her actions, something that can deepen his frustration and desperation, hastening either burnout or a resort to even more extreme methods. <clears throat> the believer must struggle to attain justice in the world. However, if she doesn't achieve it in this world, she knows it will be forthcoming in the hereafter. Therefore, she can relax and not become bitter or be led to resort to, be led to, resort to desperate, Islamically unacceptable means in prosecuting her worldly causes. She also knows that if justice is attained for herself or others, it is a gift decreed by God and not an effect she has brought about through her independent actions and initiative. If she has a Tawhidi approach to life and the world, she understands this with great clarity and there is no room for desperation in her affair because her affair is God's affair. God reminds the Prophet of this when he says, in the immediate aftermath of the calamity at Uhud, you have nothing to do with the outcome of the affair. 3.128 And this is so because victory only comes from God, the mighty, the wise. In the Quran 3.126 In Surah uh, Ani Imran, in these verses that deal with the battle of Uhud, there are a lot of wisdoms. It's around there. 3.125, 128, 126 In that area, you can kind of like poke around a little bit. And you'll find the section that deals with the Battle of Uhud. There's a lot of really important things there. It's a good section to kind of sit with and think about. I mean, when you think about the Battle of Uhud, it's very interesting, right? Like the whole seerah, when you think about the seerah, I mean, isn't it true that Allah could just reveal the entire Qur'an at once? 
Isn't it true that Allah could just give victory to the Muslims and there's no 23 years of struggle with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? Isn't it true that they don't? there doesn't have to be a hijra? There doesn't have to be battles? There doesn't have to be lost battles? But in all of that, there is a really important point which is that there are many, many lessons in life that cannot be learned through theory. Like you put the, and this is I think one of the challenges now of a lot of our issues in Islamic studies is that our life, for the most part, many people's lives, especially in the West, are very sheltered. And so we have all of these guidances that don't make sense, don't make sense, quote unquote, to the person until they've seen some level of hardship. And when they've seen like a certain level of hardship and trauma and difficulties and all this kind of stuff, they're like, oh, now I understand the wisdom in this. And now I understand the wisdom in that. And so, and there's, and even if we were to not need that and just be fine with, okay, I, I recognize the truth of this revelation, it's fine. Even from there, there's a level of depth that comes from experience. Um, that's why all these fields that have like, you know, there's a reason why there's residencies and rotations and stuff in medicine. And there's a reason why, actually in everything, like I was looking up how do you become a plumber recently? Because I was like, it's really amazing type of knowledge. You know about the plumbing and like how everything works in the house and how to fix it and stuff. You have to go through a lot of internship, right? Like you do your basic studies and then you go under someone who's a professional and you stay with them and you put in a lot of hours. Therapists are the same. Electricians are the same. Like every field that you have to do something serious that has a little bit of um, variation to it, like no case is going to be exactly the same. You have to have that experience. And uh, a lot of the concepts we have in our religion are the same. So like the battle of Uhud, the Muslims have to lose in order for certain lessons to really hit home. Like you really are going to understand why you don't disobey the Prophet them when he gives you a direct command, when you reflect on the battle of Uhud. Or if you experience the battle of Uhud, you're going you're gonna to take that lesson with you. right? So... Uh, all of this is to say that the Battle of Uhud section in Surah Ali Imran, third chapter, around 125, is a good section to read and reflect about. Being distant from despair is one of the fruits of a sacred activism, and it is, it is an indication of sound faith. Jacob reminds his sons when he dispatches them back to Egypt to search for their missing brothers that despairing of Allah's mercy is an indication of a lack of faith. He counsels them, O my sons, return and inquire about Yusuf and his brother. And never despair of God's mercy. Verily, no one despairs of God's mercy except a disbelieving folk. Quran 1287. Uh, maybe? I don't remember the end of it. Astaghfirullah. But that tells him, don't, don't despair of the mercy of Allah. They say, actually, this is to despair of the mercy of Allah is a major sin. From the from the major sins, that we have to you know always Allah is there. Allah is merciful. Allah we can always turn back to Him. Subhanahu wa taala. Regardless of the situation, regardless of how many times we've fallen, regardless of all of that kind of stuff, we can always turn back to Allah. Uh, a sacred activism must also involve a conscious effort on the part of the activist to save his or her soul. 
Most activists display a keen eagerness to work to eradicate various forms of oppression occurring in the world, which can be extremely laudable. In the process, they should never forget the salvation of their souls and take every step possible to avoid oppressing it. The Qur'an mentions, Among them are those who oppress their souls. 35.32 A sacred activist understands his or her personal salvation takes priority over saving others. While recognizing that any form of oppression is a form of darkness to be lifted from the world, the sacred activist also knows that idolatry is the greatest darkness of all. We are informed unambiguously in the Qur'an, Indeed, idolatry is the great oppression. In the Shirka Ladunmun Aldin, Surah Luqman, 31.13 He therefore strives assiduously to live a life defined by Tawheed. Okay, popcorn, popcorn, kosher, bottom of 15, until now. Until now, this introduction has focused on the need for the activist to be more scholarly or spiritual. Everything we have mentioned above, however, is also relevant for the scholar in that a scholar is not immune from being more worldly than spiritual. Indeed, a particular scholar may be just as divorced from a Tawhidi worldview as a particular activist. Having said that, our discussion would not be complete if we failed to explicitly mention that every scholar must be an activist. The most basic level of the scholar's activism is the level of implementation. A scholar must act upon his or her knowledge. Hence, knowledge and action must be complementary and therefore inseparable. The gravity of not acting on one's knowledge is expressed by Ibn Rusulan in his didactic poem, Al-Zubad. He mentions the scholar with knowledge whose acts are idle will be punished before worshippers of idols. Mm, nice translation, mashallah. Hmm. Please continue. At a societal level, religious scholars are the exemplars leading the wider community in addressing issues involving various injustices. Failure to do so leads to calamitous consequences. Among those consequences is losing divine assistance in our affairs as well as our sustenance. A well-known hadith relates, Allah will assist the servant as long as the servant is assisting his brother, mentioned in Muslim. In another narration, we see we read, Seek me among the downtrodden. Verily, you are given your substance, as well as divine aid, owing to your treatment of your downtrodden. The downtrodden and the oppressed are beloved to the Prophet ﷺ, and he dedicated himself to their service. The scholar who is a prophetic heir should also possess that love. The scholar must set the tone for the entire community in keeping this prophetic ethos alive in the Muslim community. Yes, yes, very good, mashallah. This is um, so important and such a tall task. Allah help those people and those of us who seek to be like them. Ibghuni fi du'afa fa'innakum tunsaruna فَإِنَّكُمْ تُرْزَقُونَ وَتُنْصَرُونَ بِدُعَفَائِكُمْ This, uh, in, seek me among the downtrodden, the Prophet says. It's a beautiful statement. إِبْغُونِي فِي الدُّعَفَى Seek me among the downtrodden. If you want to know, like, where do you want to find the Prophet Where do you want to find the spirit of the Prophet uh, it's, with, it's with the downtrodden. And he says, you are given victory from Allah and you are given sustenance. Because of them, by them. 
Our Lord informs us in a divine hadith, Hadith Qudsi, O my servants, I have made oppression forbidden for myself, and I have forbidden it amongst you. Therefore, do not oppress one another. Muslim. This hadith mentions a divine characteristic and then enjoins the believers to adopt that characteristic. Uh, this hadith is also in the 40 hadith of Imam al Nawawi. The scholar must be an exemplar in that regard, for she is most conversant with the divine characteristics and must be foremost among the believers in adorning herself with them. Doing so is one of the greatest ways to actualize a consciousness of our spirituality. Um, the scholar must also educate the community and work to gradually wean it away from the prevailing materialistic and increasingly atheistic worldview informing much of our activism, philosophically and methodologically. Doing this involves mining the treasures, treasure troves of our tradition in order to begin transmitting ideas rooted in a more spiritual worldview. That spiritual worldview must be rooted in the language of the Qur'an, for it is impossible to convey a spiritual Qur'anic message via a language whose roots are, roots are planted deep in the materialistic soil of modernity or post-modernity. And this is one of the big issues. I feel that one of the main differences between activism when uh, I was an undergrad and now is that when I was an undergrad, we didn't have really rigid terminology around the world of activism. So all of these terms that we have now, like, you know, so many things, allyship and, um, I don't know, there's so many, If you, I'm sure you guys can think of, there's so many, there's so many terms that are like, if you're going to be part of this activist crowd, you have to use these terms. And you have to fit them the way that we use them. And then the problem with that becomes that we don't do that. Like we're, we're just not going to subject ourselves to a world of terms that are not defined by us. Like, sorry, you know, we can agree on maybe some objectives, but I'm not going to turn over the reins of interpretation and worldview building to someone else. Um, you know, so we just, there's, there's, so we used to like, for example, we used to just talk about the issue, like there's inequality in access to education, there's problems in access to uh, housing, there's discrimination that happens in applying for work and in compensation for work, there are, uh, whatever it might be. People don't have access to decent food, so on and so forth. So we focus on the on the words and the actual work, rather than uh, you know not the words, but we'd focus on the issues and the actual work rather than just like using the right terminology and being part of the in crowd. How can we center that viewpoint of sacred activism in a world that centers worldly justice? Um, by the way, this doesn't mean that we can't use other people's terms. It just means that we have to be careful that when we're plugging into a term that's being defined by someone else, that it doesn't lead to misunderstandings for us and others. Um, how can we center that viewpoint of sacred activism in a world that centers worldly justice? Well, I think the first thing is that any we have to come to engagements 
as ourselves and not as like stripped down versions of ourselves that fit within the secular approach of someone else and we just happen to be Muslims but it's like I'm a Muslim I believe in God I believe in prophets I believe in a day of judgment and I have an ethical system that has been refined over the course of many centuries that indicates to me how I should engage with the world and so we can talk about whatever issue it is that we need to talk about and you know I'm, I'm, I might have lines that I'm not going to cross that you're gonna cross I'm sorry you don't believe in God and I believe in God so we're not the same لَكُمْ <laughs> And that's fine. We agree that there's certain things, but and part of I think understanding part of what we have to understand with that is that like no one is going to take care of you if you don't take care of yourself. So sometimes we throw ourselves in with different teams and different groups and ideas and whatever on the premise that like maybe these people will take care of us. It's not going to happen. I'm just I'm sorry to be so negative about it. It's just not going to happen. If 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 a people do not take care of themselves, nobody else is going to take care of them. And yeah, you might have uh, like in the modern in the, in the current situation, right? Like people tend to throw themselves in with the liberals because the conservatives seem like they don't really they're not into like Muslims being around. Well, I hate to break it to you, but the liberals probably don't want observant Muslims around either. They'll, they'll accept you as long as you're like a, um, I don't know, like part of the Inclusion Act. <laughs> and, if, if, and if you start disrupting that Inclusion Act because you maybe have your own positions, then they're not going to be like, no, we're going to still support you because we believe in diversity of opinion. They don't. They, like there's the same level of intolerance over opinion exists on the other side. It's just a different opinion. So right now it doesn't differ with you, so it's not a problem. But later on it's going to differ with you, it's going to be a problem. So don't think that if you don't handle your own stuff, someone else is going to handle it for you. Uh, there's no way around it. Uh, Muslims as a people have to understand that we ourselves are a people. We're a people with a history and a culture and a civilization and a worldview. And, and that means we have to handle our own... Uh, yeah, we live with everyone else, but we have to have our own uh, economic uh, backbone. We have to have our own uh, culture, our own societal structures, our own everything else, community standards, everything, right? I hope that's clear. Um, actually, uh, and what he says in the next line, subhanAllah, Furthermore, after adopting a materialistic worldview, it becomes impossible to hold on to an Islamic one. So, how do we center it? We center it for ourselves. We can't necessarily force it on someone else, but we center it for ourselves. Uh, Izutsu reminds us of this when discussing the linguistic foundation of the Islamic worldview. He writes, The whole matter is based on the fundamental idea that each linguistic system, Arabic is one, and Quranic Arabic is another, represents a group of coordinated concepts which together reflect a particular I can't say that word they they always use it in academia it's in, I think it's German Weltanschauung worldview commonly shared by and peculiar to the speakers of the language in question thus Quranic Arabic corresponds in its connotative aspect to what we may rightly call the Quranic worldview 
which itself is simply a segment of that wider worldview mirrored by the classical Arabic language. So this is an interesting point. So, you know, part of how we center this then would also be for ourselves is to use Quranic language. And of course that requires us to have a relationship with the Quran. That we, we see how does the Quran talk about this? What are the categories of people, the descriptions of people that the Quran uses? What are the what are the ways that the Quran discusses these things, that Allah discusses these things in the Quran and so on? There is much more to be written on this critically important topic. Hopefully these few pages will encourage the reader to examine the ways in which Imam Dawood expands on some of the themes we have mentioned here. May Allah bless our activists, who in many instances are putting their lives, careers, and families at risk for the sake of the various causes they espouse uh, to benefit from our scholars. Amin. And may he bless our scholars, particularly those who live their lives in full recognition of the weightiness involved in being heirs of the prophet, prophets to appreciate our activists. Amin. Ultimately, may he bless us to move into the realm where this false dichotomy no longer exists. Amen. 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 So that is the end of the foreword, which brings us to the preface. And it's 7.55, so it means we have about 10 minutes. So I think I'm just going to try to go through the preface. Let's see. Usually when I try to do this, we don't get very far, but might as well try anyways. Bismillah. I primarily work, this is now Chaplain Lina Safi. Chaplain Lina Safi, who has, I don't think she's, I think she's no longer working as a chaplain. Initially, she was actually preceded by her brother, Ustad Taysir Safi, Muhammad Taysir Safi, in uh, Michigan. And then he left chaplaincy to go pursue Islamic studies in Turkey. And now he's like a budding theologian, mashallah, specifically in the area of theology. And then his sister took over, Chaplain Lina. And uh, I think now she, I think she went to pursue her PhD. I, I, I want to say at the University of Chicago, but I could be mistaken on that. In any case, good people to know about. I primarily work on college campuses where the label activist is used to differentiate those who work against systemic injustices from those who don't. Activism has become a framework by which to understand the world, yet it is, it, yet it is often limited to the preparation and execution of particular outward actions, such as marches, walkouts, and social media posts. While these forms of protest are necessary goods for the Muslim community to take part in, they cannot be the only ways that we conceptualize what it means to be invested in social justice. Muslims working for social justice must be first and foremost devoted to their own spiritual growth, or else both the individuals and the causes will risk failure. A few decades ago, it was the personal sacrifices of ministers that captured the country's attention on social justice matters. The likes of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and our own Minister Malcolm X. It was their spiritually transformed lives that made them relevant long after their passing. But today we see Muslims too shallowly engaging Islam to be transformed by it, let alone for them to then transform society through it. That is a baller sentence. Really, really important sentence. But today we see Muslims too shallowly engaging Islam to be transformed by it, let alone for them to then transform society through it. Being a Muslim has become an identity marker just like any other, stripping it of its vertical meaning and attachment to the divine. 
Well, when being grounded by its vertical reality is how a person will be catapulted forward in its horizontal aspect with focus and inspiration. What the Prophet ﷺ inherited of societal issues was weighty. In Mecca, there was infanticide, slavery, misogyny, materialism, and in Medina, the warring tribes, and the list goes on. The Prophet ﷺ struggled against these ills by engaging them head on, but also by calling on every individual to improve how they engage one another and society at large. God on high says, If you were harsh and hard-hearted, they would have fled from you. That is a verse that every time I read it, I'm like, Astaghfirullah. <laughs> what else can you say? <laughs> At least for me, every time I read that verse, I'm just like, Astaghfirullah. Allah forgive me. Allah forgive me. If you were harsh and hard hearted with them, they would have fled from you. 3 159. The Prophet ﷺ describes his community as The Muslim is the one who other Muslims are safe from the harm of their tongue and hand And the believer is the one who all people trust with their possessions and their selves Often we find that those who battle against injustice themselves become oppressors Therefore we must work tirelessly on our own hearts To rid them of any ego, unfair judgment or superiority So that we too may be safe people thereby capable of enacting justice Very very important Very very important Prophecy also calls us to work on building healthy and just communities Not merely critiquing or working against unjust and unhealthy ones So this is the second layer that I think gets ignored all the time okay, Your job is not just to critique what's wrong Your job is to actually build something Like, you know, the proof is in the pudding Where is it? Like, what have you actually done? Has it just been a lot of critique? The critique is nice, but like what is happening? Is anything changing actually? Where are the lives? Where are the communities? Where are the infrastructures? Where are all of these things? However, remaining committed to fighting injustices long term by the building of community often lacks glory, immediate gratification, or even appreciation. It's very true. There's like hidden soldiers. They're just day in and day out doing the work. Nobody sees them. Nobody thinks about it. Many imams are like that, many community figures, many aunties and uncles and brothers and sisters and so on and so forth. They're doing all the work, nobody sees it. But they're the actual backbone of everything else because they were there. Um, <coughs> and so it is often easier on the ego to focus on tearing down the evil than building up the good. It requires rootedness, humility, and sincerity if one is in it for the long haul. The work itself refines character if a person allows it to impact their personal growth. Struggling against injustice is the way of the prophets, but only by simultaneously turning inward to nurture our moral lives can a real impact, can a real impact be made in society at every level. This was the approach of our beloved Prophet وسلم, who by the estimation of Muslims and non-Muslims alike is unparalleled in his positive impact on history. There's a question, I'll come to it at the end inshallah. Success wasn't always easy or immediate in the life of the Prophet وسلم, but he taught that ultimately our merciful Lord is the one affecting change. It can be draining, if not debilitating, to enumerate all of the systemic injustices that have been in place for hundreds of years. As Muslims, we are called to do our best. 
to serve because we are accountable to God and to leave the rest to the Lord of the heavens. All the while we can find solace in the temporary nature of this world. Even a little good done with sincerity has its reward and also may inspire others to follow suit, thus multiplying it and carving it into the human experience of countless individuals. I am enormously thankful to Imam Walid for his years of service as an honorable community leader and organizer at a time when there are so few. In my estimation, he has done the hard work of paving the way for having difficult conversations within the Muslim community while being grounded in our scholarly tradition and devotion to God, the beloved Prophet and his dear family. This book is an example of relevant scholarship and rich contribution. I look forward to engaging with it more fully. I hope that it will be seen as a loving challenge from within and not as a critique from without. Dina Safi, Ann Arbor, Michigan, January 2018, which brings us to the introduction. Question is. Question is, how does one find a balance between fighting against what is wrong and building more of what is right? Should it be weighted more or less towards one side? So, hmm. My mind always defaults now to martial arts examples. I hope I don't uh, alienate portions of the audience by doing so. Um, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um. <laughs> uh, should it become so? I personally feel. And this is my opinion at this moment in time, you know, we're all engaging in conversation together and growing together and stuff, is that in some ways it should be weighted towards building. Because I feel that critiquing and fighting against what is wrong is an extension of building upon what is right. So to use the martial arts example, uh, the primary issue in multiple disciplines, I, I can't say everything, but it seems like this would be a universal issue, is to watch your base. So, for example, like if one is going to learn boxing, the first thing they're going to teach you in boxing is not how to throw a punch. The first thing they're going to teach you in boxing is how to stand and how to move your feet if, you, if you're going to move. And that's your base, right? And once you can keep your base, then you can think about how is it that I'm going to strike? But I can't strike without base, nor can I take a strike without base. But if I have a strong base, then I can do those things. Same thing in, um, in, in jujitsu, for example, like everything is going to go back to your base. If, you ha if, if your base is strong, you can, attacks can come at you and you'll, you'll be able to bear them. 
and you can also reciprocate uh, if the need is there but if you don't then you can't do anything and um, that is like I, I I think everyone should should at least try to train in jujitsu. I'm a little bit of a fanatic in that regard. May Allah, inshallah, help this pandemic to go away so we can go back. Um, and so other things can also come. <laughs> but so that we can actually train. Uh, uh, like the things you find, you know, like when someone is really high level, their base is so strong. It's like, it's unbelievable. Uh, you can't move them. And if you try to move them, they're not going anywhere. And if they let you move them, it's on purpose so that they can take your base away. Right. So, so how, do you, how do you balance between fighting what's, what's outside and building what is right? If you don't build what is right, you have nothing to fight from. As soon as you go to fight, you're going to get destroyed. And this is actually, you see this in the Prophet Sallallahu life, right? Like, this is not, the Prophet Sallallahu didn't, like, Udina lakum, like, you were given the permission to fight those who fought you. That wasn't, like, first revelation. If that was first revelation, there'd be no Islam. Right? If, the, if, if the first revelation was, you can fight back, there'd be no Islam. They would have just been all killed. It would have been done. But the Prophet Sallallahu and the community of the believers are given really the ability to fight back basically in Medina because now you have a base. In Mecca you have no base. Okay. Um. <laughs> I'm getting critiques on my background. It often feels like changing policies is the only effective way to enact justice. What other methods do Muslims have in their tool belts in order to take the next step and do something about the injustices? Especially sen since enacting policy change can be met with failure. Um, that's a good question. So we had this professor at um, at the American University in Cairo. Her name is Dr. Hiba Rauf Azat. She's in Turkey now. She's phenomenal. If you can find any of her work and stuff, she's really amazing, mashallah. Um, and in her class, we had a class with her on, I forget what it was called, contemporary issues in political Islam or something like that. And <coughs> there was all this conversation around the public sphere versus civil society, I want to say. And how civil society and changing... Hiba Rauf Azzat. Hiba Rauf Azzat. Azzat. H-E-B-A-R-A-O-U-F-E-Z-Z-A-T. So in, when you're working in the realm of civil, civil society, you're working in the realm of institutions and policy and so on and so forth. But public sphere just happens like in the public sphere, right? And both of these... Um, <coughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought I improved on my background by taking out the flag of Newfoundland. But 
apparently this is this is not good but anyways um, public sphere would be to do other things like basically to change culture dr jackson talks about this a lot hafizullah which is a much bigger issue but really the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam now if we look at now this is the other side before we were talking about uh, mecca versus medina and power um but now we're talking about public sphere now now in this case he changed culture first so the, the, the in Mecca, what the Prophet them is doing is he's changing the culture of the people in some ways. Not like the Arab culture, or what, but like the, the culture of how they do things, the culture of how they think about things, the culture of how they look at things. That's where like a lot has to be done. So, for example, you can change the laws around discrimination, but that doesn't change the culture of racism. The culture of racism has to be changed. So to do to do like the cultural work of shifting, which is very hard to do, by the way, changing culture is very very difficult to do, and building culture is actually a little bit easier than changing it if you're working from scratch. Um, it's part of why the Medjlis was its own place, started from the beginning because from the beginning you can establish a certain type of culture in the space, that, and if you come into something else, it's very difficult to change it. So that would be like my short on that. What other methods do they think about methods that will deal with issues of cultural change? Um, you know, and that's going to be done usually through the arts. And Islamic civilization did this, right? It wasn't. That's not something new. But to to contribute to the arts, music, theater, movies, cinema, video production, whatever it might be. Um, and not just to do it in like we need a pat on the back so that people can accept that we're human beings type way but in a way that's actually contributing to um, uh, but in a way that's actually um, you know builds builds that yeah from one big task to an even bigger one yeah absolutely alhamdulillah Type inshallah we will conclude here uh, and then we'll continue next time if this is too broad but do you have any tips on changing your culture um, not in particular but I think the biggest part of it is that you have to build culture you have to produce culture you have to Actually, if you want to change it, you have to actually contribute to it and be a part of it. And then um, you can start to impact it. There's certain things I think that happened recently that might have been an example of that. Um, I can't think of it right now. Khair. Uh, inshallah, we'll continue. It's all big stuff, and uh, many, many things have just been opened. And inshallah, we'll continue next time from the from the actual beginning of the text, which is on page twenty-three. So we'll, we'll begin there next time. Inshallah.
Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha ila astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Muhammad. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Inshallah we'll see you guys next time. Uh Amin. Barakallahu fikum. Assalamu alaykum.